So today's topic is actually classic, and we're gonna talk about you know the uh, situation that uh, you know everyday product managers facing in terms of like you know how do you come up with product ideas, how do you uh, validate those, what are some best ways you can go about doing them cheaply and efficiently that can actually scale down the line, and how do you ensure product market fit? So we're gonna talk about all these in details today, guys. And uh, my guest today is uh, Arundhati Sampath. Uh, she's currently the CPO of Mira Beauty. Previously, she's been at uh, some of the biggest uh, tech giants, Amazon, Facebook, and Yahoo, uh, with a bunch of search and ads domain knowledge. And currently, her focus uh, at Mira is on early stage startups and products. And um, she also holds an MBA from the University of Michigan. So get ready, guys, for a very interesting chat. My guest, Arundhati Sampa. Hey, I'm your host, Cyrus Shirazian, and welcome to PM Hub Podcast, a show dedicated to bringing you fresh and unique insights from product leaders and tech entrepreneurs. All right, Arundhati, welcome to PM Hub. Mm -hmm. uh, nice to be here, and thank you for having me here. For sure, for sure, yeah. So Arundhati, uh, really stoked to talk uh, about uh, this topic of, I guess, which which comes very close to every uh, product person's uh, role, at least individual contributors, like you know how to validate a product idea, which uh, mm -hmm. we'll get into really deep. But I'm all I'm curious, like to 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 know if you can share with us a little bit about your journey to product and how has it evolved over the years. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm currently the chief product officer for uh, Mira Beauty, uh, which is a startup focused on uh, the uh, beauty vertical, helping people discover the right beauty products uh, for themselves. Uh, so for me, my journey into product uh, has been, uh, I, I went to business school at the University of Michigan. Uh, and then after that, I started working um, on partnerships and alliances management. Um, but then I was uh, interested in product management, so I kind of, uh, uh, you know, it, product management basically is a blend of like creativity and rigor, uh, and so for me that's uh, a really great combination. Uh, so I switched to product management in the same company, it was a web security company, uh, and then I had the opportunity with, to work for Yahoo um, as a PM in their search advertising uh, division. Um, and then after that, I w went uh, went to Microsoft briefly, and then uh, I went to work for Amazon, um, starting with their advertising business, and then in search, and then finally in Fire TV devices. Mm. Um, and then that was where, when I was in uh, Fire TV in Amazon, that's when I started working on early stage products, like you know V1 products, uh, and I really learned a lot. Uh, and I also got interested in bringing early stage products to market and figuring out uh, product market fit. So that was like uh, an area I got really interested in. Um, and then I spent about a year in uh, Facebook in search uh, and working on new initiatives uh, in the Facebook search team. Um, and basically, uh, you know, as I mentioned, uh, I, I was pretty interested in uh, product market fit questions. I think as a product manager, this is probably the hardest uh, uh, problem uh, you can work on, uh, uh, but the failure rate uh, for new products uh, is super low. Uh, to gain adoption is super super low, um, and so it's a really interesting uh, problem to uh, 
uh, to solve for a product manager and, you know, the most uh, challenging. Uh, so for me, uh, you know, this is kind of the area that I'm exploring right now, which is why after Facebook, I decided to go to a startup um, uh, to, you know, work on questions of product market uh, fit. Uh, so that's that's where I am. Very cool. Very cool. I, I've, I've seen like you've been all over the place from all these uh, giant tech companies and then uh, you kind of found your interest in product market fit. So let, let's get into it. Uh, like, how, how do you define product market fit? I'm curious. Uh, I think it's um, uh, it's it's basically I think at its core, it's building uh, building a product uh, that a specific audience or a specific customer segment finds really useful and they adopt in large numbers. So that's the market. And so basically your product uh, addresses a need that uh, a large number of people or a particular audience segment uh, has. Uh, so you're solving that problem for them and therefore they kind of uh, adopt your product in large numbers. So that's, that's pretty much like a very simple uh, definition of product market fit. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's super straightforward and simple. And so uh, I think the hard part is actually getting to it. Uh, but you kind of, uh, you know, the easy part is like defining it. Okay, so I'm curious, but I mean, uh, thanks for clarifying it. But I'm curious to know, like, how do you go about setting those numbers to define whether you've reached product market fit or not? Uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, you start with like a large addressable market. Uh, so you define uh um you know who the target audience is and obviously you want to do your due diligence to make sure that uh it's a large enough segment and it's not like maybe a small niche uh so for example in my current company uh for us uh, our uh audience is pretty huge it's basically you know beauty enthusiasts uh people um typically women uh in the age group of say you know 18 to 45 or even 50, uh, but usually skewing like 18 to 30, 35, uh, who are really into uh, uh, into beauty um, and would like to and buy a lot of beauty products. Um, and they would like to get like a good uh, uh, set of recommendations for what are the right products to buy without wasting their money. Uh, and so so that is, uh, you know, that is a pretty large uh, addressable market. I mean, there's like, you know, industry numbers that you can look at. Uh, but that's like pretty straightforward to say that hey there's like you know millions and millions of users um in this target segment um and um and you know you can do as a product manager you can do like some high level numbers to say hey this is like exactly how many million users there are this is how much spent there is um and so on but i think uh, uh you know that part is fairly straightforward as long as you identify a target audience that is large enough uh then uh, you know you at least uh, for me, it's like really hard to project initially that I'm going to get exactly X number of customers. But you say this is your addressable market. And then, you know, I'm trying to get like an, you know, a certain share of this addressable market um, with uh, uh, with the solutions that I'm going to come up with. Uh, so, so I think you just start with the addressable market and then you think about, OK, can I solve a problem for the addressable market? Mm. And then as part of that, is it like a collaborative process? You work with your executives? Or is it something like completely you have to come up on your own? Uh, in, you know, typically uh, it depends. Uh, so uh, in my case, like for the startup that I'm in right now, um, you know, the founders had already identified the addressable market. 
Um, and to some extent, it also identified like, you know, who the target audience is and all of that. Um, and, and so I was very interested in the problem space and I could see the value of it. So I kind of, uh, uh, you know, started working with them on it. Uh, but in a larger company, for example, in other uh, companies I've been in, uh, you know, uh, you have to start uh, sometimes coming up with who the target uh, audience is yourself. Or if you're going to do your own startup, you can say, hey, this is like the target audience uh, that I think uh, I can solve a problem for. They have this problem and I, I, I'm going to solve it uh, for them. So it really depends on the situation. Um, like sometimes it's already like defined for you and then you're like, okay, what is the right product for this target audience? Sometimes you just have to come up with the target audience yourself. Um, for example, in Fire TV, when I was in Amazon and Fire TV, um, you know, the question we asked ourselves, um, and this also came from the executive, but, uh, you know, for the team itself, it was, you know, what can we do for cord cutters? Um, because that's like a large growing seg a segment of the marketplace where people are like looking to, uh, you know, cut the cord and not uh, uh, be tied to cable television, but uh, they're looking for really great entertainment options outside of, uh, you know, traditional television. So that was like our audience and that was already defined for us. Sometimes you have to define the, your audience yourself, uh, especially if you're starting your own company. If you're an entrepreneur, then you're like, okay, what is an audience? Um, uh, you already maybe have an audience in mind or, um, uh, and then you're like, I can solve a problem for this audience. Gotcha. So you first go about, uh, you know, identifying the audience and figuring out the total addressable market, like you mentioned, and then you go ahead and try to figure out what kind of problems you can solve for them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So sometimes, you know, you might be part of, you know, you're solving that problem for yourself and you're a representative of a large enough audience. Um, sometimes you see a problem that another uh, customer has and you're like, OK, this could be a bigger problem for a bigger audience. Right, right, right. I remember reading this book called Hacking Growth, which you might have heard of. And like, for example, I think in the book, the author talks about, uh, you know, you can define uh, I've reached product market fit if at least 40% of my current existing uh, customer user base, they say on a range of five, one to five, you know, like at least 40% uh, of them like be on a scale of four to five and those four to fives are kind of, you know, I almost can't live without your product to a sense. Like mm -hmm. that's kind of like how we went about defining how you get to, uh, you know, how you've, you can kind of say if, if my customers, uh, if I've reached product market fit or not, do you, you leverage a scale like this or not? Is this relevant? Yes. Um, so it does make a lot of sense to run uh, periodic surveys um, in order to ask customers whether they would be uh, very disappointed if your product was no longer available to them. Um, and, uh, you know, the theory is that if at least 40% of people say that they would be very, very disappointed if your product was no longer available, uh, then it means that you've uh, hit a certain level of uh, product market fit. Uh, now, in practice, oftentimes, uh, what is true is that you will find um, that 40% uh, of or more of people will uh, say that they would be very disappointed uh, without your product. Um, and that, that's a necessary but not sufficient condition. So it's a bar that you have to hit. Um, and it means that you're on the right track. Uh, but what you will actually find oftentimes, uh, at least in the early stages, is that uh, uh, 
it, this may actually not be reflected in usage metrics. So even though a lot of people will say in surveys um, that they would be very disappointed without your product, it may not be reflected in usage metrics. Uh, and the reason is that when they're doing a survey or even when you're uh, you know, doing some user research or interviews with uh, users, when they are thinking about your product, uh, they're doing so in isolation and they look at its feature set and they're like, wow, this is amazing and I would be very disappointed without it. Uh, but when they go about their daily lives, um, there's competing products um, uh, as well as, you know, they just have other things going on in their lives. And so if your product is not compelling enough for them, uh, then they may just forget, uh, forget all about it or it may not fit into their uh, uh, real lives. Uh, and so, so uh, you know, the, this survey data uh, of 40% uh, is a necessary condition, but uh, oftentimes you will have to do a lot more work. Uh, even if you get like a 40% rating uh, from users on the survey, you will have to do a lot more work um, in order to see that be translated into usage metrics where people are actually um, using your product at, uh, uh, at higher rates um, and finding it indispensable to their daily lives. Um, and so I would say that, you know, if you don't even hit this bar, then you have a lot more work to do. Uh, but even if you hit this bar of 40%, uh, it doesn't really mean that you've hit PMF um, necessarily. You have to actually go and look at the usage metrics and correlate that with the survey data and user research data uh, in order to get uh, the full picture of how indispensable your product is and how compelling it is uh, for the user. Um, and so, uh, so I would say it's kind of a bar you have to hit, but it's not going to be uh, sufficient. And oftentimes you'll find that you have to do a lot more work uh, in order to get to the usage metrics that you want. Wow, that's such a that's such a cool insight, and actually, I think that's the exact, uh, I guess, point where you see it, it's something in, in theory and versus in practice, and that's exactly what I was looking to to uh, to to kind of like uh, get your thoughts on. So you're basically saying that just thinking about these uh, problems in isolation. Yeah, they solve a problem, but then how does it relate to the whole, let's say, journey of that customer that's using your product? Is it compelling enough? Are you are you solving a problem across their journey that's uh, in that's super important that actually makes them to a point where you know it, it adds to that whatever stickiness or whatever you want to call it type of product that you mm -hmm. have, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, because surveys are self-reported, like people are answering a question. And at that time, your product is top of mind for them. And so they're like, yeah, this is so useful. Um, and they can see it rationally when they think about it. Um, but then, you know, when they're going about their daily lives, they have so many things going on and they have alternatives. And at that point, they're not thinking rationally about it. Um, and so if you don't fit into their lives like that, and if they don't remember you, um, they're just not going to keep coming back. Um, and so so I think a survey is like the first step. It's necessary. but uh, it's it's uh, unfortunately not enough. You have to work a lot harder. I love that. This is such a cool uh, concept. I'm, I mean, I'm curious to kind of if you can if if you want to dig a bit deeper here. And when you say you know you have to you have to give them something more to like mm -hmm. like you mentioned like a natural you know hey yeah when they're thinking about your product in isolation sure yes but then you don't know if this is if that if if that's the way that they're naturally gonna go ahead and. Um, kind of like solve the problems if your product is a part of it. I'm curious to know, like, uh, uh, how can you make sure they're actually uh, you're actually reaching product market fit? Let's say not just from a survey. Yeah, I think uh, the most uh, natural way uh, is to measure like live production metrics. 
Um, so, uh, and even before that, I mean, there's like different steps, right? Uh, so even before you build like a feature set, uh, a survey is the first step um, of telling you whether um, your existing feature set has met people's needs. Uh, but then when you uh, actually look at whatever your standard metrics are, so that could be if you have an e-commerce site, it's like sales, right? They may say your uh, website is great and the products you're selling are great, but if they don't actually buy it, um, then that's like where the rubber hits the road and uh, you kind of know that you're not meeting their need. Um, and then, uh, or if you are say a social media site, uh, then retention is an important metric. So they're not buying anything from you, but they have to keep coming back and using it. And what is the time spent um, on your uh, site and your experience you're offering? Uh, so, so these are like standard metrics of if people are getting value for my product, they would actually buy my stuff. They would spend time on my site. They would keep coming back every day. Um, and so, um, if you know people are telling you in surveys that hey, your product is indispensable. I love it. I'm just going to keep using it every day. And then if uh, you know you see it's not being reflected in your metrics, then you have to go back. That right away tells you that you know, there is promise in it when people look at it in isolation and look at it like rationally, but it's not really fitting into their lives yet. Um, and it's not offering like substantially more value than other alternatives they have. Um, and so your standard metrics that underpin your business are kind of the best um, indicators. Uh, I think the challenge is like, you know, uh, before you build like a production system, even when you're even more early and you're testing out concepts, like you'll often have people kind of, if you share a concept with them saying, I'm kind of going to build this kind of an experience and people would be like, oh my God, I can see myself using that. That's amazing. And so you might get really positive feedback at that point. Um, and so that's good. Um, but then, you know, you actually have to build the experience and uh, test it live with them in order to get the feedback. And usually that's expensive, right? And that's one part of it. The other is, you know, there may be four or five different concepts um, that you're testing out um, and you can't build all of them. I mean, that's super expensive. You might have a small team. So, you know, you just can't be building as many experiences as uh, uh, you think of. Um, and so there's also other ways you can go beyond a survey, but not like build a full fledged product. Um, and obviously the, the obvious way to do that is also kind of like a design prototype uh, where uh, you know, you you can sometimes you need high fidelity design. Sometimes it's even like, you know, just wireframes, uh, but you start getting feedback. And if you see people converge towards one concept and not the other concepts, like you present like four or five different concepts in a design format. And if you find like a lot of people are able to converge on one and they can also even articulate without you prompting them, they can say, oh, this is interesting because I can see this doing this for uh, solving this problem for me then it's a cheaper way to validate it doesn't mean like you could still like build that and find that people are still not interested but at least you get some early validation before you invest a lot of uh, effort into it um and so those are like some earlier stage um, uh, ways you can validate that um and then obviously you know the final like the rubber hits the road is like you put it out in production um and you look at your metrics and you also look at the surveys in order to figure out uh, you know, the metrics tell you like finally, uh, but the surveys also give you more qualitative information about people are like, hey, this is useful and here's why. And they tell you, I mean, this is not working. I wish this would be better or whatever, right? Um, so you put all of those things together and then you get more qual qualitative and then the final, the metrics kind of pretty much tell you if you're on the right track or not.
like what you hear so far, make sure to never miss an episode by clicking on the subscribe button now. This podcast has been made possible by listeners like yourself, and I'm thankful for your support. Now, let's head back to the show. Yeah, that's such a good point. Actually, remind me of, uh, I was reading uh, Inspired, you know, by Marty Kagan, and he talks about, yeah, it's really good if the customers, uh, you know, they say they find value, but actually he talks about a few interesting uh, ideas. Okay, if they really find value, are they willing to put down the credit card? Or are they mm-hmm. willing to spend yeah. extended amount of time with you? Like when it comes to that, are they are they willing to give you a you know a reference or a recommendation? Let's say depending on the product, whatever it is, that's where it kind of like you know I think you can go behind. Like, okay, you know what? I could see myself using it. But okay, are you willing to put down your credit card? Right. <laughs> so exactly. So that's a different yeah. story, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, right. Like, and that is the most important thing, right? Like, is a, cu- a customer willing to open their wallet? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's awesome. So I guess uh, on, on a on a uh, on a broader scale, like let's say you 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 um, find these problems for for your customers to users. Like, how do you come up with product ideas? Uh, so there's there's a few different ways. Um, um, and as I said, you know, the reason um, I got into product management is uh, uh, this field offers so much creativity opportunities for creativity. So um, I think, uh, you know, to start with, I brainstorm with myself, so to speak. Um, and also, um, uh, I, I also try to like frame a really broad question around this area. Like if I had to build a product for beauty enthusiasts or cord cutters, like what would it be? And then just kind of uh, go crazy, right? Initially, don't constrain your thinking uh, and have your own ideas, come up with like a whole bunch of ideas yourself. Uh, and then I do the same with the team. Um, so the team could be like engineers, designers, whoever wanted to participate um, uh, and kind of do something similar, like uh, for something like this, um, you know, make the problem statement kind of broad, but at, at the same time, it has to be pertinent. So, you know, people are not going off topic, uh, but really broad. Um, and then also, you know, maybe give them constraints if you have constraints or if you have like certain parameters you want people to stick to um, so that you don't they don't come up with solutions that, you know, you can't do. Uh, so that's kind of pointless. But so it has to be broad enough, but not so broad that people are kind of like uh, all over the place and uh, not actionable. Um, and if so, if there are any constraints, you kind of like come up with that. Um, and then, you know, also. Uh, give them the confidence that there's no dumb answers or stupid answers. I mean, oftentimes uh, the path to a really good answer uh, goes via a lot of stupid answers. Like, so, uh, so once people have that, and then also encourage them to think big. Like, you know, just come up with like ridiculous stuff, even if it's big, uh, even if it sounds ridiculous, as long as it's a big idea, uh, just come up with that. Um, and then, you know, once people. Um, um, uh, you know, just put down their ideas and then we can brainstorm. And then during that process, I mean, the idea is not to critique other people's ideas. Um, and mainly because it's like, you know, that might cause them to, uh, you know, filter their own thoughts and you don't want that right now. Um, so you just want them to come up with their unfiltered ideas. Um, and then at that time, you make like an inventory of, okay, here's like 20 ideas that people have come up with. Um, and then, um, you know, you could do a follow up right then where you say, hey, you know, these things are really interesting. And now let's put some more rigor to it. Uh, and now we're actually going to critique the ideas uh, because now we have something that people have come up with. Um, 
uh, that are really interesting. So now you're going to critique and now you're going to say, but I see this flaw, like how can we solve this problem in this idea? Otherwise the idea is really promising. Or you could kind of like, you know, go back and then do follow on sessions with people where you're just brainstorming around a specific idea. Now it's pretty narrow and pretty focused. The conversation is pretty focused and that makes the idea become like really stronger. It irons out a lot of the issues uh, with it. Um, and then, you know, you get something that's like workable where you're like, okay, now I can see that, uh, you know, I fleshed out a lot of the details with the team. Uh, we've kind of like critiqued it. Um, and now we can come up with something where we can start wireframing it um, and uh, drawing it out uh, and then maybe even designing it and start getting users uh, feedback. Um, so, you know, I usually like to start with, you know, a problem statement that's super broad, give people the confidence that nobody's going to critique that. Um, right away or call them dumb. Um, and then later on, you have to do the rigor um, and you have to actually like start critiquing it, but initially don't. Um, and I think like one of the things I've also learned as a product manager is that all the best ideas do not have to be yours. Um, and, you know, sometimes, you know, to be honest, I've also felt insecure when I'm like, oh my God, I mean, uh, if it's not my idea, are people going to think that I'm a bad product manager, right? Uh, and especially early in my career, it's like, uh, you know, that was a thought at the back of my mind. But what I found is like, as a product manager, it's not like all the ideas have to be yours. The ideas can come from anyone. Um, they can come from marketing, they can come from like the intern. Uh, but the job of a product manager is like to make that decision and the judgment around which idea is really good and then be accountable for that. Um, so you say, hey, these are the ideas that really make sense and for this reason, um, and then, you know, uh, work towards fleshing it out and making it actionable and then also standing behind your decision. So I just can't say after, say an idea doesn't pan out, right? I just can't say, oh, it was like this intern who came up with it. It's not my fault. It's his fault. Uh, like I'm accountable for it because I made the decision and that's my job. Uh, my job is not to come up with all the ideas. My job is to make the decision. Um, and as a product manager, like, you know, we hone our judgment. Um, like over time, like our judgment hopefully gets better and better. Um, and that's kind of like uh, what I think our primary role is. Um, uh, and then, you know, uh, getting buy-in judgment uh, and then changing the decision if we need to. Um, and it's not about like coming up with oh, all of these ideas are mine. And, you know, my, uh, I put my name to uh, this idea like that is not what we're going for. But, you know, even for me, it was a process because I used to feel pretty insecure about it. I'm like, oh my God, that idea is better than mine, but are people gonna think I'm a really bad product manager because of that? Um, and the answer is like, you know, uh, you don't have to worry about it. But it took me a while to get to that. Yeah, definitely, I can, I can, I can relate to that. Uh, now, it's very interesting how you mentioned, like it's almost like uh, while you were explaining this process self-flow, you know, diverging and converging. This whole this uh, double diamond from from uh, uh, design uh, thinking came to my mind, and uh, and kind of like that's that seems to be a, a similar approach where you first uh, you know uh, going about exploring, and then you go about kind of bringing it together and kind of making make it more actionable, which is which is great. That's exactly I think that's how we we can contain uh, capture good ideas and make make sure that. Um, that creativity is still a part of the process and same time you get uh, that that action piece as well when you're converging uh, the ideas now let's say you have these awesome ideas you kind of we go through this process and uh you kind of like figure okay which one of these um under both the problem space and the solution space are 
kind of like viable. How do you go about validating, you know, uh, which of these ideas are actually gonna, you know, drive value for, for your customers? Sure. Uh, I think to start with, um, uh, usually like one of the things uh, I like to do is I just say from wearing my customer hat, like if I was this target customer, um, how would I find it useful to, uh, uh, to me? Uh, and basically it's like putting yourself in the customer's shoes and then just not think about, you know, anything else, but it's like, how would I find this useful to me? Uh, is it really compelling? Is this the sort of thing that I would come to and use every day? Um, and then, you know, once you're like, okay, this sounds like reasonably like, and this is purely intuitive. Like I can't come up with numbers at this point at all. Uh, but it's like, if I was a beauty enthusiast, if I was a cord cutter, like would the solution really work for me? Um, and then you also have to think about like related to all the other options I as a customer have, you know, there's so many other uh, great products out there. Uh, there's even things people do offline, right? Like uh, we may think, um, uh, you know, to give like a really basic example, like people may keep coming up with all of these uh, great productivity tools um, and uh, they come up with uh, all of these tools for, um, uh, you know, planning your day better. Um, and so there's a lot of other options out there. So if you wanted to build a new productivity tool, it's like, okay, there are a lot of other options out there. Uh, but it could also be like people just write to-do lists on a piece of paper or on their uh, uh, diary, right? Um, and so a lot of people are really used to it. They're very comfortable with it. So that's also, uh, you know, is my option going to be even more easier to use than like just people writing something on a stick it or a piece of paper? Uh, because that's your competition too. And if you can't really say that it's going to be more easier to use uh, and you're going to add more value compared to the offline option, um, then you have to think about it. So you have to look at, you know, is it going to be significantly better than the competition? Uh, is it also something that, um, that you know, um, uh, is going to be just compelling? And compelling is like a very, uh, I think, intuitive word, like qualitative word. It's really hard to quantify compelling early on. So you just have to be like, okay, does this make sense intuitively? Uh, and then obviously you want to do the user research, like once you're satisfied with that, once you can make the case for that, uh, you want to do your user research. Um, and so, you know, uh, uh, a part of it is like just calling people and talking through the concept. It could be initially, you could just be like, explain the concept to them. Um, and uh, the other is also you could have like wireframes or, you know, simple mocks. Um, or if you have, uh, you know, the services of a designer, work with the designer to come up with something more high fidelity. Um, and then test it with a bunch of users and see if people kind of like uh, like the concept. And oftentimes what is also interesting is, you know, without you prompting, don't ask leading questions, but if people are able to articulate your value proposition back to you, um, then, then it's like, oh my God, they're getting it without me prompting, not saying, hey, are you able to find beauty products useful to you uh, is a very leading question. And people will usually, you know, they don't want to be rude. So they'll be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's really not helpful. But if you show them a uh, design and they're like, oh my God, with this, I think, you know, I can find the right products for me. Um, or, you know, it will help me avoid buying, a, wasting my money on something I don't want. Um, and sometimes it's like very, uh, uh, I would say it's almost like validating when people repeat your value proposition to you without you saying anything to them. Um, then that means you're on the right track. Um, and then at that point, you can, um, you know, start building like a really cheap, um, 
what do you call it, a really cheap uh, feature or product set for them where you can get live data. Uh, and you know, the most obvious way to build it is to actually like code it. Uh, so that's, uh, that's a no brainer. But there's also like some really interesting uh, ways you can do it. Uh, I think, you know, some of the literature I've read on this topic, like people say, hey, build a landing page. Uh, it could just be a dumb landing page. But if you see a lot of people just coming there and putting their emails, like where you're like, hey, we're building this product, you know, put your email down uh, so we can let you know whenever uh, we open up this product. And you can have five different landing pages for five different concepts. Uh, and so, you know, you can see where you collect the largest number of emails. And then that tells you, like, people really care about this concept versus others. And that's pretty cheap. You don't have to actually build the product. Uh, the other thing I've actually found really useful and um, is <clears throat> sometimes when you put out an ad, uh, like a Facebook ad or a Google search ad, uh, so you pay money for the ads. Uh, but when you find people, like, converging on one ad, uh, one type of ad versus other types of ad, uh, it actually tells you that they're really interested in that concept. Um, and one of the examples we found was, um, you know, we put out an ad for like, you know, uh, never spend money on a bad product. Um, and then we also had ads for, uh, um, you know, vegan uh, products, like beauty products that are vegan or cruelty free. And we found that these ads performed way better than many other ads that we put out. Um, and, you know, even before we we had like some core product uh, already in our app there, like some core features around this, but it wasn't like well fleshed out. Uh, but we found that these uh, these kinds of uh, ads perform way better than some other kinds of ads. And that gave a signal that, hey, we should actually flesh out these concepts because people care about this. Um, and so so it's kind of like the equivalent of a landing page where you put out a concept and people are like, I, I really care about this. Um, and obviously, I mean, if people kind of, uh, you know, they click into it, but if they don't convert, then, you know, the ad platforms will penalize you for this. So you don't want to, you want to be careful about it. But, uh, but, you know, you get some early signals without spending too much money uh, or too much investment uh, about, okay, this concept is more important than other concepts. And then you actually go out and build like that full product. Uh, so that's also, you know, one way to validate your idea without building out the full product. Uh, the other thing is also like, you know, once you've decided, hey, I got enough signal, I'm going to build the product. You also don't want to sit there and do a one one year's worth of effort um, unless you have to, right? Like in some cases, you actually have to. Uh, you have to build out the full backend. You have to build like all the algorithms and the customer experience. And in some cases, you have to do that. In some cases, you could actually curate an experience. And this is something I learned the hard way as well, mm. where you can actually curate an experience where you can be like, uh, if... I could create the perfect uh, page for this. Um, and so uh, if I could create the perfect page for like vegan products, what would that look like? And sure, at some point, I'm going to have to build out the back end where I'm like, you know, finding all uh, out of a million uh, beauty products, I'm going to find like these are the best vegan products and have like algorithms that do that. Uh, but in practice, I can actually like, you know, just uh, come up and this won't scale. Like in practice, what you can actually do is just come up with here's like the best products I know. I ask a bunch of like people who really care about beauty about like, hey, what are the best beauty products you use that are vegan? And I come up with like this perfect page for that. Um, and then I just want to test it. Uh, it's not going to scale in the future. It's not going to like scale to other kinds of products. Vegan is just one. Like there could be like so many other kinds of uh, products that people care about. It's not going to scale to all of that. But I just want to get signal on is this actually like compelling for people? So I just like almost handcraft this page. Uh, and then 
um, you know, I, I see if people are coming in, if they're finding it useful, are they clicking through the products? Are they engaging with it? And then if they are, then it's like, okay, I've got signal. Now I have to do it the right way. I have to build algorithms that will do this. I have to do things that have to scale. Uh, but initially before I spent like six months effort doing all that and finding actually people don't care about it so much. And I wasted all this effort. You can actually handcraft a page. Uh, so it's not that expensive. Um, and uh, you know, you're almost like, uh, if I could use the word, you're kind of like faking an experience, uh, with the intention of doing it right in the future. But right now you're kind of like faking it. And then you're seeing if people will actually like, you know, you get behavioral data and see people actually engaging with it. And then, you know, you fake like a bunch of different things and then you find people care about one or two things and they don't care about the other three. Um, and then those are the things that you build out a full backend for and you kind of like, uh, you know, do it right after that and then you discard the other three. So that's like, even if you have to build a product with engineers, uh, there's ways to, um, uh, you know, handcraft it initially. Uh, and then once you have conviction that people care about this, um, then you kind of like, you know, do the usual uh, product development process. So, so I think there's like cheaper ways to get into it. Um, and then, you know, your final version uh, uh, is the one that you put a lot of mus muscle behind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I love, I love you. Drop, you dropped so much uh, good insights there. Especially I love the one you mentioned about if you're, uh, you know, users or who are you testing with, they repeat back your value prop to you. That's a, that's a positive. And I love, I love that. That's, that's a very interesting way to look at it. And uh, also on the last one you mentioned, like that's kind of like when you're kind of faking the experience. Like I think some some call it like the Wizard of Oz when you're like you know things work in the front, but in the back end everything is manual. And uh, yeah, I've done it multiple times as well. Like with different situations where you know we can you know uh, leverage a competitor's product to do the same kind of uh, depending on what you're doing. Again, it's really uh, the first case by case, but you could totally leverage what's already out there to. Um, to try to, if it's a recommendation engine or something like that, to to provide yeah, exactly. to, to if they're providing value, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's 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 great. But awesome, Arnati, thank you so much. These are some really good insights that you gave us. Thank you so much uh, for for coming on the show and talking about uh, you know product market fit and validating product ideas. Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, this has been a very interesting conversation, and thanks for having me here. That's it for this week's episode of PMH Podcast, guys. If you enjoyed it, definitely leave a five-star review and share on your social media. If you have any suggestions, definitely send me a note. My email is cyrus at productmanagerhub.org. And now you can get all the tips and action items for this episode for free at this bit.ly link I'm going to give you. It's bit.ly forward slash PMHub36. Also subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes. I'm uh, Cyrus Shirazian. And until next show, stay safe and healthy.